Oh, Father, we confess with the Lord Jesus Christ that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So in this moment, when your word is read and your word is preached, we want and expect and ask for life. Give us life by your word. Feed us by your word. Strengthen us by your word. Give to every heart their particular need by your word. Speak to us, O Lord. Your servants listen. Amen. 57,762,169. Does anybody know what that number represents? You hear that, Jeremy? That's Steph, that's Steph Curry's total points against the Cavaliers. <laughs> Before I tell you what that number means, I, I, I want you to know I'm not trying to be political. This issue has been politicized to death, with very little fruit, and I'm not trying to be personal or unkind. This is a number that should elicit the deepest wells of compassion. I give you the number in case some of you don't know. I give you the number so the scope of the issue is clear. And I give you the number because I hope you'll see its connection with God's work in the world. As of January this year, 57,762,169 is the total number of reported abortions performed in the United States since 1973 the year Roe v. Wade made unrestricted abortion a right in the country. And here's my question. If that number were true in the first century, how might it have affected the plan of God? If Mary and Joseph and the first century world lived in a context like the United States today, and that number were true of their world, how do you imagine it would have impacted the plan of God in the world? Approximately five out of ten pregnancies in the United States are categorized as unwanted pregnancies, a hideous phrase. Of those unwanted pregnancies, 40%, so two of the remaining five, and an abortion. That's how we get this number. Our text this morning, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5 to verse 56. If you need a Bible, raise your hands. One of the, uh, the ushers will, will bring you one if you'd like one. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5 to 56. There's a hand down front, brother. Begins with the story of two pregnancies. Luke begins his gospel not with a full-grown Jesus. Luke begins his gospel not even with the infant Jesus, the baby in the manger. Luke begins his gospel in the womb of two women. 
Luke tells us in doing so about the dignity and the importance of pregnancy and children. And he illustrates for us how God in his infinite wisdom really put the, the, the weight of his entire plan of redemption on the back of the unborn. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 56. Follow along with me as I read. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Amen. As I said before, our text covers two pregnancies here at the opening of Luke's gospel. The first pregnancy there is in verses 5 to 25, where we see the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. The second pregnancy is there in verses 26 to 38, where we're told uh, the account of the announcing of of the conception of Mary in verses 26 to 38. And then in verses 39 to 56, the text concludes with Mary and Elizabeth getting together and having a kind of praise party, don't they? And those first two sections really follow the same pattern. The angel, Gabriel, appears to Zechariah and appears to Mary and greets them. Uh, The angel gives them really a, a word of prophecy from the Lord. And then we see their reaction, Zechariah's reaction and and Mary's reaction, and then further explanation from from the angel himself. Now, we're given these two scenes, and they sort of illustrate for us in in the reaction of Zechariah and the reaction of Mary, really two different ways to respond to God's word. So the first point for the sermon this morning really comes from verses 5 to 25, and, and it's simply this. Don't make God close your mouth because of unbelief what we see with Zechariah. The second point is verses 26 to 38. Instead, believe God's plan even when you don't understand it. Believe God's plan even when you don't understand it. This is what we see from Mary. And finally, 
Praise God for his work even before it's completed. Even before it's completed. Don't make God close your mouth because of unbelief. Believe God's plan even when you don't understand it all. And praise God for his plans even before it's completed. Let's see that first point in in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're introduced to them there in verses 5 to 7. That that gives us the context in verse 5. Notice that they lived during the days of Herod, king of Judea. Herod was a Jewish king of the region, but he's a puppet king. He's been placed there by Rome. Israel is under Roman occupation in this time. This is not a, a peaceful time in Israel. So like in the hymn that we sang, you can imagine the people sort of saying, come thou long-expected Messiah. They are longing for deliverance from Roman occupation. We see not only the context, but we also see the character of these two persons, don't we, in verse 6. They're both descendants from Aaron. We know that because Zechariah is described as a priest. He's a part of the Levitical priesthood. And and Elizabeth is described there as a daughter of Aaron. They're from the the priestly tribe of of Israel. And and notice notice something else about them. They're faithful, aren't they? They're described in verse 6 as righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Oh man, to have God remember us that way and describe us that way. And it's been that way for a long time. This is an old couple. They're in the fading flower of life. We see their context, we see their character, but we also see the challenge in verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. We're meant to have our fingers sticky with the dripping sadness of this verse. The absence of a child haunted them. They were righteous, but they were childless. And they probably wondered why they were childless if they were righteous, or if they were righteous if they were childless. You know how we kind of sort of blend together God's approval with our blessing? It's a natural thing to do, but it's a wrong way to think. And Elizabeth must have felt really broken and blameworthy. She was the one the text calls barren. That desert-like word. Dry, expansive, cracked, lifeless word. Imagine, if you will, when she was a younger woman, maybe newly married to Zechariah, how often well-meaning people might have asked her, when you going to start having some children? And after a few years, when she began to age and things seemed to be less certain to people, they, they stopped asking her that, and they just started saying to her, we're praying for you. And then when she got old, they whisper around her, she can't have children. And when they didn't whisper it, she probably saw it on their faces. How hard it might have been for her to rejoice in the pregnancy of other women and the celebration of children. Verse 25 reveals that Mary was well aware of what she called there her reproach among the people. 
She felt a stigma and a shame. And verse 7, verse 7 says both were advanced in years. So at some point in life, Mary and Zechariah had to adjust to the reality that there could not was indeed a would not. Their suspicion, their suspicion that they could not have children because of their late age became the reality that they would not have children. But I love this couple. I love this couple. When I was serving in the Cayman Islands, there was a woman who came to me and asked for counsel. She'd been coming to the church for a few weeks, and a cloud of sadness just kind of hung over this woman. She would sit in a pew um, sort of almost by herself. There'd be this sort of circle around her. And um, she came to me one day and said, if I could, I'd love to come and get counsel. I said, sure. So she came to my office, and in deep sadness, she told me that she had one son but it had seven miscarriages. She had one question for me. Why is God punishing me? Our disappointments will either make us bitter or make us better. And our disappointments have a way of giving us terrible theology and refusing the truth about God's goodness. So though I told her that morning, God is not punishing you. And while I can't explain why he's entrusted you with this suffering, I know that God is good. That seemed to her like so many empty platitudes. In Mary and Zechariah's case, the striking thing is that they handled a lifelong disappointment and a social shame with righteousness and blamelessness before God. They still served God even though they didn't have what they wanted. See, being righteous and blameless doesn't mean we're going to be without a challenge. It doesn't mean that we're going to have a challenge-free life or that there'll be no heartaches or that every desire of our hearts will be granted to us. That's the prosperity gospel. That's not the biblical gospel. If you serve God for what you can get, then you don't serve God, you serve yourself. You serve your own desires. The righteous are not free from suffering, beloved, because, because they serve the Lord. We don't, we don't get everything we want because we, we live well. And we may live well past the years of possibility without receiving our hope. But if we are God's people, we'll live righteously anyway because God is our hope. And this is the couple we're introduced to in verses 5 to 7. And, and this couple begs us to ask of ourselves, is this us? Will we serve God faithfully through our disappointments? Will we serve God faithfully if he doesn't give us a husband or a wife? Will we gladly and faithfully serve God if he doesn't give us children? What if God didn't give us our dream job and our dream house and our dream car, but left us rather than with our dreams with ordinary life? Or or worse than that, a hard life. Will we serve God righteously and blamelessly? Because as we sang a moment ago, Jesus is worthy. That's that's what we see in Zechariah and Mary. And I'm glad they tell us this because of what follows in the rest of this section. Verses 8 to 10 zero in on Zechariah the priest now. Verse 8 tells us that his division has been called up to the temple in Jerusalem to perform their duty. It's their turn as priests to, to offer incense and lead in worship. This happened twice a year. 
There were 24 divisions who would lead in the temple worship according to 1 Chronicles 24, and now it's Zechariah and the unit of Abijah's time. Verse 9 tells us that something special happened during this rotation. Zechariah, look there, was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Why is that special? Well, there were so many priests in Israel that to actually go before the presence of the Lord and, and burn the incense when the offering is being made to God and God's people are, are praying, that was a once-in-a-lifetime deal. That he was chosen by Lot is, is God's providence, is God working in time and space to bring to pass this special privilege for this priest. And so he goes in, while verse 10, the people outside are praying, and he makes the offering of incense before the Lord. And it's during this moment, notice, of focused worship that verses 11 and 12 happen. Look there with me. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Angels are glorious creatures, majestic and awesome. Two things happen in the Bible whenever angels appear customarily. One, sometimes people mistake the angel for God himself. So great and glorious is the angel. But almost always, even when they don't make that mistake, the people who see the angel fall down in fear for their life. And this is what happens to Zechariah. He sees this glorious being. And he falls down in fear. Angels don't look like Della Reese, y'all. <laughs> They are awesome. And incidentally, this is why I, I tend not to believe the stories of people who tell me they saw angels and, and, and they felt all warm and, and fuzzy inside. No, if you saw an angel, you'd feel like you're about to get killed. All right? Angels are also messengers. Acts 7.53 tells the angels were involved in the giving of God's word to God's people. And that's the case here in verses 13 and 17. And what a wonderful message the angel brings to Zechariah. Zechariah is there offering the incense. He's leading the people in worship. The offering is about to be made outside. And here he is in, at the table of incense. And an angel appears and the angel speaks. And the angel says this to him, seven wonderful things. Number one, do not be afraid. That by itself is comforting when the Lord tells you don't fear, isn't it? How often he tells his people that. Don't fear. Number two, why? For your prayer has been heard. The reason Zechariah is not to be afraid is because the Lord has heard Zechariah's prayer. You ask yourself, now, which prayer? I don't think he means the prayer that's being offered right now in the offering of the incense. Why? Because he tells him, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. And I don't think Zechariah was praying that prayer in the temple just then. I based that on his response a little bit later. I think he'd long given up on that prayer. I think he thought God had not heard that prayer. I think he thought God had forgotten that prayer, but he didn't realize that God holds our prayers in a bottle and he saves them for his own time. And right here in the temple, God sends an angel to meet Zechariah and says, I heard you. I got you too. Your wife Elizabeth is going to conceive a son and bear him, and you will name him John. I'm so interested in this, I'm going to name the baby for you. <laughs> what a dramatic moment. 
Notice the third thing he tells him. He said, look, not only are you going to have a son, but number three, you will have joy and gladness and man will rejoice at his birth. If we stop right there, if the angel said another word, these three statements would include most everything that human beings want. Not to be afraid, to have a family, and to be happy. Oh, we settle for so low a prize from God. But the angel goes on. Number four, he says, for he will be great before the Lord. God will have a special regard for your son, John. He will be a mighty man of God. And number five, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This means the child, John, from the womb, from before he's born, will be filled or controlled by God, the Holy Spirit. That's why he can't drink alcohol or strong drink because nothing else should, could, should control him. Paul teaches us the same thing in Ephesians 5, 18, where he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be controlled with the Holy Spirit. Why is he anointed with the Spirit of God? Number six, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. God will use Zechariah's son, John, to ignite a revival in the entire country of Israel. And number seven, he will go before him. Who's the him there? the Lord their God, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, we, we have to ask ourselves this. We have to take this in. The angel speaking to Zechariah in the temple, this was a historic and unique moment in the history of salvation. Not since the last words of the last book of the Old Testament has God spoken. It's been over 400 years. God can give you the silent treatment when he wants to. 400 years God has not spoken. Now in the temple with this old man Zechariah, God sends the angel Gabriel with his word. And what words does he speak? Those last couple of verses are a quote or a paraphrase of the last two verses of Malachi 4, Malachi. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. God promised that Elijah would come and be a forerunner of the Messiah. And here now, God picks up where he left off four centuries earlier and says, your son will be that Elijah, that forerunner who comes before the Savior of my people. What an amazing thing. That's really good news. But notice Zechariah's response in verse 18. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How can I know this? I have to be careful from self-righteousness reading this right now because I'm like, man, you're looking at an angel talking to you. What, what more proof do you need? It's an angel. <laughs> and, and, and you recognize him as such. And, and you're a righteous man. And, and you know the scriptures. Why, why do you not recall Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 who had the same problem you had? God had promised him a son. And yet he was 100 years old. And his wife was 90 and some odd years old. It's the same story. But you know what? <laughs> unbelief is sneaky. Our unbelief is sneaky. It, it, it sneaks, notice here, it sneaks right into the middle of the holiest religious exercise of the man of God. 
He's righteous and he's blameless, and he's leading Israel in worship. He's before the altar of God, and an angel appears to him and speaks to him, and he doesn't believe. You can be righteous and blameless before God and still be unbelieving in God. You can be a preacher preaching the gospel and not believe anybody's ever going to be saved. You can be an evangelist with us on Saturdays, knocking on doors and, and meeting neighbors and not believing. Anybody struggle with this unbelief? Not believing. Anybody's going to listen to you or anybody's going to accept your invitation to church or anybody's going to give you time to speak the gospel. You, you can be married and not believe that rascal was a gift from the Lord. <laughs> you can be praying about a thing that your heart desires. Right laced into the marrow of that prayer is a sneaky unbelief. That's Zechariah, and that's, and that's us, isn't it? You see what Zechariah is focused on in verse 18. He says, look, I'm old, man, and my wife is old, right? We, we can be so focused on our circumstances and on, on our problems that, that we can't receive God's word or, or trust God's power. We, we, we can think, we can think our problems are so great that it makes God's power very small. So we can't, we can't focus on our problems and focus on God's power at the same time. We'll make one great and we will diminish the other. It's like you can't worship God and mammon at the same time. You'll serve one and hate the other. So it is with our problems and God's promise. We can't hold on to them both. And when our eyes are fixed on our problems, we won't remember God's word and we won't remember how it applies to us. Zechariah wants more proof than an angel revealing God's word. He wants proof rather than promise. He's walking by sight, not by faith. You know that you could block out the sun with a quarter? All you need to do is bring it close enough to your eyes. And so it is with our problems. We can block out the glory and the power and the brilliance and magnificence of God and his love for us by taking our quarter-sized problems and bringing them right up to our eyes till we can't see God or see his goodness. Zechariah is a, a warning for us against this. And can I make an application before we move on to the older persons among us? I'm so grateful this Thanksgiving season that, that God has sent the older members of this church to, to be a part of our family, to help us by God's grace to engage in the work of the Lord. I'm so glad that you didn't start thinking about your age, and you didn't let that hinder you from God's work in and through you. And now that you're here, don't, don't let it hinder you now. You, you are not forgotten in God's plan any more than this old man Zechariah and old woman Elizabeth were forgotten in God's plan. You are vital to God's plan in the church. In fact, without you, we cannot do the one thing that God has commanded us to do in Matthew 28. We can't make disciples because God has ordered things in such a way that the older persons among us are meant to teach the younger persons. You're not just along for the ride. 
We don't want to sit you off in some corner and forget about you. It's to our shame that older persons are forgotten in our society. No, we want to treasure you. We want to remind you of God's plan for your life. We want to see you active and involved in all that God has for us as a church family. And we, want you to, we don't want you to look at your age and to feel disempowered because you're old. Being old, as wife often tells me, is a wonderful thing. He tells me he's looking forward to getting old. It's a wonderful thing. And there's some riches and some wisdom that only come by age. And that's by God's design. So I want to encourage you. We, we need you. And we want you to be very much a, a full and active part of what's going on here. And notice Gabriel's rebuke of Zechariah, verses 19 and 20. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. I, I, I like it when the angels start speaking like they're from Southeast. <laughs> He said, man, don't you know who I am? <laughs> don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I work for? I was sent here to give you a sign. You want a sign? You want a sign? Okay. I tell you what, since you like to bump your gum so much, <laughs> since you got questions for everything, I'm going to close your mouth <laughs> until your wife have her baby. That's, that's just And this is why our first point is don't make God close your mouth because of unbelief. If the choice is between human creatures questioning God's word or God's word closing our mouths, guess which is going to happen? In fact, on the final day, on the day of judgment, every mouth will be closed. Every mouth will be silenced before the God of the universe, the judge of the universe, who will, by his word, judge us for everything that we have done. And there will be no rebuttal. There will be no rejoinder. There will be no appeal. The God of the universe will do all things well, including administer justice on that final day. Better to receive his word and spread it abroad than to question his word and to be humbled in judgment. It closes Zechariah, this righteous man's mouth, whose job was to preach God's word. And he does it until verses 21 to 23. Zechariah had to learn sign language coming out of the temple. All he could do was gesture and go home, but he apparently went home with a newfound strength because verses 24 and 25, Elizabeth conceived and she hid the pregnancy for five months. But she praised God in verse 25. Her reproach had been removed. Don't make God close your mouth in unbelief. Instead, point number two, believe God's plan even when you don't understand. This is what we learned from Gabriel's second visit, his appearance to Mary um, down there in Galilee in a town called Nazareth. We have switched from the, the major religious center of Jerusalem. We have switched from the public worship of Israel, and we have gone now into the private home of a young woman off into the country, into the hillside of Galilee. And there we are introduced to Mary and Joseph in verses 26 and 27. It's been six months after Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now we, we, get, to meet, we get to meet her, her cousin. 
Verse 27, we're told that this young woman, Mary, was a virgin and that she was betrothed to Joseph. Betrothed is like being engaged only stronger. In this culture, when you were promised to marry someone else, it was, in effect, like marriage. The only way to get out of it was to have an actual divorce. And she was committed now to, to marry Joseph. And Joseph, we're told, is from the house of David. Significant. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he's a descendant of the king David. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are at the end of their long lives, but Mary and Joseph is a young couple at the, at the beginning of theirs. What God does in the world has nothing to do with our ages or our hometowns. He uses whom he wills. Verses 28 to 23 tell us of, of Gabriel's visit. Look at verses 28 and 29. Gabriel greets Mary with words of grace, really. He says, greetings, O favorite one, the Lord is with you. In other words, God is smiling on you. We might be tempted to think that Zechariah was chosen because he was righteous and a priest, but the angel's greeting to Mary reveals she's chosen solely as a matter of grace, of God's favor and kindness. And Mary doesn't understand the angel's greeting. It's kind of like us the first time we hear of God's grace. That's not our natural language. Our natural tongue is law. I, I do good and God will be good to me. That's law. But grace is God favoring us and being kind to us even when we don't deserve it. And Mary's a little, she stumbles at the greeting and, and the text tells us she was greatly troubled by it and was trying to figure out what kind of greeting it was. How could she, an unknown young woman, be so described by God? Anybody ever feel like their life is too small for God to notice? Anybody ever feel like their life is too insignificant for God to be aware of them? Perhaps that's how Mary felt on that day. And just as with Zechariah, the angel explains the message in verses 30 to 33. Not only would Zechariah and Elizabeth give birth to the promised forerunner, the one who would come before Christ, but Mary would give birth to the promised Savior, the Christ himself. Look there, verse 31. Gabriel promises in the first part of that verse that she too will conceive. And then, and then he gives the baby a name. Verse 31, he will call him Jesus. And according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, this means he will save his people from their sins. Verse 32 reveals more than any human could ever have imagined or dreamed of. Mary's own son will actually be the son of the most the Son of God. He will be God's own child. And this son will fulfill the promise made to King David hundreds of years earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This will be David's son who rules over Israel and rules, rules in an everlasting kingdom forever. Now when you look at verse 34, Mary sounds a lot like Zechariah when she replies. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? But apparently there's no unbelief in her response. She's not asking, can you do it? She's asking, how will you do it? Her question builds on faith 
not unbelief. And this is why Gabriel doesn't rebuke her the way he rebukes Zechariah. And, and this is why Gabriel goes on to explain uh, two of the greatest mysteries in all of the universe, the incarnation and the Trinity. You see that there in verse 35? And the, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see, he refers there to God the Father, the Most High, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each having a part. But it's God the Son who will take upon himself human flesh and, and come into space and time among us as a babe. When, when God says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, he does not mean God impregnated Mary, as some Muslims slanderously believe of Christians. We just want to clarify this. You may come into a Muslim friend or neighbor who says, you guys believe God you know, had relations with a woman and no, 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 no. We, we, we abhor that idea. That, that's blasphemy. No, it, it brings to mind Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. You remember there at the very creation itself, we're told about the Spirit hovering over the deep, preparing the, the, the creation itself for, for the work of God to come. That's the idea that's in, in view here. He's brooding over, he's hovering over, he has come upon her in, in power. And, and as the writer says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, putting these words in Christ's mouth. When Christ came into the world, the writer says, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body have you prepared for me. That's what's going on. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God, the body was prepared for the Son of God who would be conceived and brought forth by Mary. You see this parentage? Fully God and fully man. This is what Christians have believed about Christ from the beginning. This is why he's able to be a perfect savior for us. He is, he is fully man in order to live the righteous life that, that we deserve and to offer himself up to God in the payment of penalty that men deserve. And he is fully God in order to be, to be the perfection that we need, in order to, to do what we could not do in our fallenness, in this obedience, in this righteousness to God. And so he becomes for us the only mediator between God and man, the, the God-man, Christ Jesus. And because he's the only mediator, the only go-between between God and man, he is now the only way for men to come to God. It's through him and faith in him, this one who was born of a virgin. And we shouldn't stumble at this, that Christ is fully God and fully man. Look at verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. If God can cause an old barren woman to give birth and a young virgin woman to give birth, ain't nothing too hard for him. To come into the world in the form of a babe, easy peasy. This is the God we serve. This is the God we trust. And notice Mary's faith. Notice Mary's trust. She becomes a picture for us of, of genuine faith. Verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What a beautiful confession. Brings to mind Isaiah, doesn't it? Here, my Lord, send me. Brings to mind Ruth, whom we thought of earlier. She says to her mother-in-law, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. Wherever you go, I will go. 
brings into mind Esther going before the king, doesn't it? If I perish, I perish. Whatever is God's will. It, it brings to mind Job and Job's great profession. Yet though he slay me, right? Still I will, I will praise him. It, it, it brings to mind Jesus in the garden, doesn't it? Praying in Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is the way the faithful respond to God's plan, even when they don't understand it in Ashley. Let him have his way. And the question becomes, do we have this kind of faith? Is this our declaration? I am the servant of the Lord. Whatever you will, whatever you plan, whatever you want to do, let it be done. And what must Mary be assuming about the Lord's plans? I mean, the only way to say this genuinely is if you believe that whatever the Lord has planned for you is better than whatever you had planned for yourself. Another gospel writer tells us that when Joseph found out that she was pregnant, he thought to himself to end the relationship. That the spirit and the angel had to intercede with Joseph too, say, no, 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 I got something going on over here. You go ahead and take care of it. But this woman, when she says this, whatever is your plan for me, let it be so, she, she very likely would have been facing being divorced in her betrothal, being set apart and shamed, unlikely to marry anyone else to sort of wear the scarlet letter of her day. She was likely then to be forced outside of home and family and likely to be destitute. She's facing real peril. It's just like what it is with women today when, when, when an unfaithful man abandons a woman. Statistically, the woman ends up in poverty. The child ends up in poverty. Statistically, their, their, their lives are hardened doubly. Why, brothers, let us care for our women. Let us care for our wives. Let us care for our children. Even, even if it breaks us, never let us forsake them. And this is what she was facing as a woman. And faith speaks. It says, whatever you will for me, let it be. Do we have this kind of faith? I pray we do. Do we need to renew that commitment somewhere? I, I pray that we will. Let us not let God close our mouths in unbelief. Instead, let us believe God's plan even when we don't understand. Number three, and finally, let us praise God for his work even before it's completed. That's what we see when Mary and Martha get together just a, a few days later. Verse 39, Mary finds out from Gabriel that Martha is pregnant, and she runs to Martha in the hill country in a town in Judah, and she enters the house of Zechariah, and she greets Elizabeth, and, and, and the Spirit just erupts in praise in this scene. Notice, notice what's happening. Verse, verse 43, 41, excuse me. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I, I love Elizabeth right here. Spirit, spirit moves in her. And in the power of the Spirit, she apparently is given a revelation. Because all Mary did was walk in the house and say hi 
And Elizabeth knows she's carrying her Lord. Elizabeth knows that Mary has believed in the word that she got from the Lord. How'd she know that? I think it came from the Spirit. And John, in the womb, sees, sees, he, he knows that Jesus is coming to the room. And John starts dancing a little shout in the womb, too. He, he leaps in his mother's belly for joy. And it's customary for us to think that the first one to confess the lordship of Christ is Peter. Mary does it before Christ is born. Blessed is the one who carries my Lord. What a marvelous confession. What wonderful insight that she could see in the womb a baby who would be her savior. Oh, my Lord. And so she praises God. Notice one other thing. She does it loudly. <laughs> she, gets, she gets loud. Mary, uh, uh, Elizabeth's a little Pentecostal. Uh, she, gets, she gets loud in there. She's filled with the Spirit, and she's speaking loud. That's Pentecostal, ain't it? So, <laughs> so ain't nothing wrong, ARC, with singing out loud, <laughs> clapping your hands, praising your Lord when you recognize Him in the midst. She praises God for Mary and the child. And then notice what Mary does beginning in verse 46. She breaks out in song called the Magnificat. And what a beautiful song filled with hope and rich truth about God. Notice in verses 46 to 48, Mary rejoices. Her soul rejoices in the Lord. Her soul magnifies the Lord. And her, her spirit rejoices in God her Savior. Why? Because God, her Savior, look, look on the humble estate of his servant. That's what God is like. He sits high and he looks low. He, he finds the broken and the contrite, and he comes near to them. He is close to the lowly. Mary praises him for it. And look at verses 48 and 49. Mary now sees herself as blessed. She was confused earlier about the greeting, but now she says generations will call her blessed. And that's what happens centuries from her time. She's no longer confused about favor. Accepts it as the blessing of God. But now notice verse 49. The nations don't call Mary blessed because of anything that she has done. They call her blessed because God, quote, who is mighty, has done great things for her. Excuse me. And holy is his name. The, the point is God, not Mary. So, so for my Roman Catholic friends and folks coming from Roman Catholic backgrounds, there's not the slightest hint of Mary worship or Mariology in this text. Our Catholic friends do err at that point. She's not co-mediator with Christ. She's not, she's not standing between us and God. The only mediator between us and God is the baby she's carrying, is Christ himself. And she here is praising God for her blessedness, not exalting herself in any way. When we come to verse 50, we learn that God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now they're talking about us. Anyone who would love and respect God will find mercy with God. From generation to generation means God's mercy reaches down to our time and place too. Even now, even here, the gospel goes to every creature. The love and mercy of Christ is offered to every soul. 
All you need to know is your need for mercy. Verses 51 to 53 give us the signs that God's mercy is for us all. There are no more virgin births. We're unlikely to be in a Jewish temple when an angel visits us. But we can see the work of God every day. And that's what Mary celebrates in 51 to 53. So we're, we're not to ask God for a sign his promise will be fulfilled. We're to look around and to see the fulfillment. There are signs posted everywhere if we know how to read them. Notice in verse 51, God scatters the proud. Verse 52, God brings down the mighty. Verse 53, God sends the rich away empty. In our society, those are the ones everybody thinks have it made, isn't it? The rich and the proud and the mighty. But now notice in contrast, verse 52, the Lord exalts those of humble estate, of low position. Verse 53, he fills the hungry. Once again, beloved, if we would know the riches of God's mercy, we simply need to admit the poverty of our lives. Verses 54 and 55, we see Mary's confidence that God fulfills his plans and keeps his promises. He has helped Israel. He has remembered his promise to Abraham and to the generations. And all that he has said to them is about to come to pass. And indeed it did. Christ was born. And Christ lived a sinless life. He did that to stand in our place to offer righteousness to God, which we could not. And Christ died a sinner's death, judged in the wrath of God for our sin on Calvary's cross. And he paid that penalty that would satisfy God's anger. And he was buried, and three days later, he was raised by God from the grave, proving that God accepted his sacrifice and proving that he was Lord of life and death. And now God calls all men everywhere to repent of their sins, and the trust in this same Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Savior of all. It's how his mercy comes to us, through his Son. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted this Christ, trust him now. Do not wait another day. Do not delay a moment longer. His mercy awaits. His steadfast love awaits. The forgiveness of sins awaits. Eternal life and the fellowship of God's love awaits. Come to it. Trust in Christ. Maybe a way to conclude is to ask the question, what do you think is Mary and Elizabeth's view of children in the womb? The very least we can say is that they think life is a special gift from God and that the fetus is a baby. From the beginning, God planned to carry out his work of saving the world by the birth of a child. Genesis 3.15, the first time the gospel is alluded to, we read these words, that the seed of the woman, it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It makes sense when you then come to the virgin birth. The seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And here Mary is carrying that seed that the Son of God would enter the world through pregnancy and childbirth. And the fact that he would do so fills pregnancy and gestation and childbirth with incalculable dignity and meaning. 
The infinite God came through the close spaces of a human womb. That's remarkable. That makes the womb and all that's in it sacred, holy, profoundly important. Had Mary and Elizabeth been living under Roe v. Wade, the plan of God to save the world would have been in jeopardy from the angel's announcement to her. She would have had a line of people ready to tell her to abort the baby because life's going to be hard and you don't know if Joseph is going to be there. We tend to think our age is more advanced than scientific. Well, these, quote, primitive people recognize from the start something our culture has worked hard to deny. The fetus is a baby. If it's a baby when you miscarry, it's a baby when you abort it. Praise God that Christ was not born in modern-day America. Praise God for pregnancy. Praise God our Savior was born. Let's pray together.